You're listening to OEA Grow, a member-led production of the Oregon Education Association and a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. OEA Grow is by members for members. In Season 7, members discuss special education with Venus Reeve. Welcome back to OEA Grow Season 7. I'm your host, Venus Reeve, and this season we are exploring topics in special education. Today, we have the privilege of speaking with special education case manager Nathan Anderson from Baker School District. Thank you for being here today, and before we start talking about case management, will you tell us a little bit about yourself, Nathan? Yeah, uh, so as mentioned, I'm Nathan Anderson. I'm a special education case manager, uh, so it's a little different than a special education teacher directly. That I am in my 14th year working in education. I've had about nine years in special education. I've worked both in a mental health field with special education. I had seven years teaching uh, in a, a mental health institution, and oh, then cool. a couple of years uh, working with charter schools and providing mm-hmm. special services with them. So it's a couple of very different backgrounds. Neither one of them is what we would think of as the normal route for education. Um, So this year, a lot of my work has been focusing on working with families uh, who have students in kindergarten through the fifth grade. In the past, it was focused a little bit more on middle school. Um, I've also expanded on to handle all referrals that the charter schools have for kindergarten through 12th grade. So that's kind of a little background about where my work has been in education. That's quite a wide range. It's very interesting too. So that encompasses a lot of different skills and demands and and colleagues to collaborate with. Um, So as a special education case manager now, can you describe a little bit about what that is and the population that you serve? Yeah, so as a case manager, large part of my focus is the paperwork, which is usually the least favorite part of the job. Um, I, right. I stare at a computer screen for a lot of the day, uh, working in Tynet to create IEPs, eligibility forms, all of that. Um, mm-hmm. I do collaborate with some coworkers. The population I serve is a little bit diverse because these are online virtual charter schools that I am oh, wow. working with. And so the students live anywhere in Oregon. They can be, for me, it's usually kindergarten through fifth grade. Uh, so the younger yeah. students, but since I'm also working with referrals, I have through middle school, occasionally a high school student that I um, I say work with, usually working with the parents of the student and the teachers who are also working with the family. Um, occasionally I get a little interaction with the students as well. Um, the primary needs of the students that we wind up working with tend to be speech, a lot of them, because at home, a lot of the parents who are working with 
their own students with help from the charter school, they're able to do a lot of what a special education service would normally provide. Um, since they're at home working one-on-one -on -one with them, they yeah. don't see as much need for other special education, but when it comes to speech, the parents need a little bit more help. So we do get quite a few others beyond speech, but at least 40% of our students are receiving speech services. So it's a, a high percentage. Um, we also have a fair number with autism. Um, mm. And and we, we do get a few with specific learning disability as well. Um, but a lot of it is the, the speech focus. So population I, I serve largely, uh, there's some, some speech to that. Um, it makes sense. Um, as you're describing, you know, there's a lot that we can support our children in doing, but there are these specialized components that some of our children need that, goodness, I didn't know how to help my son with his speech needs. I was really grateful for that, for that uh, person who could do that and the people who made that happen. So it sounds like that's one of the things you can do in your role is to help provide access for families to some of these services as a case manager. That. <clears throat> Yes, and that's also a big role with the charter schools. You know, the any family can homeschool. They you know, register with your local ESD or your local school district, and you can homeschool. Um, these families who go through the charter school, they are able to receive extra support. So the parents are still able to provide a lot of the education. But there's students. Students are enrolled in a public school. It's considered public, even if it's virtual. And they have a teacher who's there to provide resources, give suggestions for curriculum, and then there are special education case managers like me who are able to meet with the teachers and the families to give suggestions for accommodations, uh, help them develop goals for the students. And then we have the specialists like the speech language pathologists who are able to meet on Zoom with their students to work on speech. Um, and that's for the families uh, a very necessary benefit that the schools are able to provide because otherwise the students are just going to keep going with the speech errors that they have and not know how to correct it. So, you know, as you're talking there, I've got several questions that have come to mind and I'm going to go forward with the next one, but I, I love what you're sharing and I've, I've got more that I want to ask and understand. So it sounds like part of the way your role is different than a special education teacher is that you are not doing a lot of the hands-on, um, either even virtually hands-on kind of instruction, direct instruction. How else Correct. is that different and how are they similar? Um, so uh, you, you kind of captured the big essence of how it's different. I'm in an office, not a classroom. I meet with the parents, not the students. Um, I, even my interaction with other teachers, it's all on the computer. Okay. I, I do interact with other case managers because we're all in the same office area. But the teachers that I work with don't even live in the same city that I do. So we meet online, we communicate via email. Uh, so 
it's very different, the collaboration that we have. The speech language pathologists live in four different cities. Wow. So they collaborate online as well. It's, it's a virtual world that we very much live in. And that's a lot different than your standard special education teaching, where you have your classroom, you have some students coming there. There's, you know, for however many years it's been, there's been the push into the classroom. And so there, we don't even have that. We have the students are in the home. And my focus is on making sure the education in the home will be the education they need. Okay, so that's a big so difference. Some of the similarities, I suppose, yeah. are, you know, we, we're still writing an IEP where we're developing goals based on evaluation data. We're thinking about the accommodations they need. Accommodations in the home, the parent can just provide. If they're aware it's needed, they'll provide it, whether there's an IEP or not. Uh, but we also consider, will they continue in the home? Is there something we're seeing in the home that if they go back to a brick and mortar setting, mm, right. they'll need there? And so we, we kind of view things as if they were in a more standard special education setting, what would their needs be? And can we include that as we're thinking things through. It really speaks to that uh, transferable document. I know when we're in meetings with families yeah. and developing an IEP, one of the things I always say is, you know, XYZ may not seem like we want to spell it out on the IEP. However, if you were to move to Hawaii and this wasn't part of that school's MO, you want to make sure that you have it on the IEP so that everyone knows who reads this document, this is what supports the student best. This is how we can give them more access to general education and build the skills that they need. Um, so that yeah. it's, it's kind of exciting to hear how that continues in a different right. format. And there are interesting things that come up with that because any IEP is written for that setting. You know, mm -hmm. we, we can't write an IEP for uh, a brick and mortar building but we can include it, things within the IEP. We embed things in the present levels, sometimes on the accommodations page, so that if they do go to another setting, they can see what our suggestions are at the very least, so that they know how they need to modify the IEP for their setting. And that's something I've dealt with my whole special education career because I've always worked in unique settings I have IEPs that come to me from another setting and I have to adapt it to my teaching situation. And when I'm thinking about IEPs that may go out to another school, I'm thinking about what I need to include so that another special education case manager or teacher can look at that and say, oh, this was very specific for that setting. Now I need to modify that for my setting and this is what it looks like they were suggesting. I want to make it as easy as I can for a potential transition. Nice. Really keeping that individual and the individualized education plan that this is a snapshot of this kid. Also how that works in a new setting, um, that flexibility of an IEP. Yes, definitely. 
So within that IEP team, and you mentioned this a little earlier, um, working with other specialists such as speech language pathologists, and you mentioned having um, students on your caseload that have autism. So I imagine that some of those students may have autism consultation, or you may work with specialists, um, or I, you know, I'm kind of curious, is there any occupational therapy um, specialist yeah. that might be included? Uh, can you share about that? There are. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, speech language pathologists, we definitely work with them the most. Uh, there are needs within the realm of autism. And so we do have an autism consultant. Uh, and it's interesting because it's only consultation that can be provided aside from speech and language pathology, uh, the mm -hmm. speech therapy. And so we put so many minutes of consultation for uh, autism a year with occupational therapy. Once again, it's an occupational therapist who lives in one location who might need to serve students throughout the state. And so it's consultation only. And that's one that's very different from a public setting where an occupational therapist can go into the school and see the student and come up with things that they're working on with the student in our setting. They have to talk with the parent mm -hmm. and work with the parent to provide suggestions for what the parent can work on with their child within the realm of occupational therapy. In a sense, the autism consultant and the occupational therapist are training parents to fill the role of an occupation, or occupational therapist and an autism consultant. They're training them to know what it is they need to be doing. They don't have all the credentials. They don't really have all of the experience, but they have experience with their child. Right. And so they're, they're being trained in very specific ways to work with their child. Um, the other roles that are frequently included uh, with us, we have a special education liaison with one of the schools I work mm. with. Um, and so they, they kind of fill a gap where if they communicate between the special education team and the general education team to make sure there's always someone who can be at any meeting we have and communicate with anyone else who might not be at the meeting. Uh, so that way everyone can be on board with what we are working on with the students. Um, it's... For this particular school, it turns out very useful because of the involvement that they have family advisors at the school. But the family advisors also teach once a week, at least. Mm. Uh, they, they have community days. And so they might not be able to make it to all of the meetings because of their busy schedule. So the liaison makes it to all of the meetings. That's their role within the school. And then they can communicate back and forth. Um, the other role I see frequently, they might not be at all the meetings, but we have diagnosticians for evaluations um, okay. located within Baker City, and then they schedule travel around the state so that we can make sure all of the evaluations are completed. Uh, a little different than most school districts where you are in the city you go to school in, so the school psychologist might yeah. complete an assessment. Um, we have to think about travel restrictions. 
It's fascinating to hear how different schools and different, you know, kind of teams make it work. You know, having a liaison, for example, really works for that school. That's how they've made it work. And and that communication component with all the members, you know, I'm not going to run into you in the hallway. We're not going to have a hallway meeting because you're in your home and I'm in mine. But there are ways we can get that communication to happen and get what this child needs and this family needs. Um, I, just, I find it very fascinating the different ways that people kind of flex and bend to create a system uh, or set of systems that work. Um, I get and it. I was something that, that, yes, with the pandemic hitting in 2020, the nation saw a need for change in many ways. Yes. And these schools existed before the pandemic, but mm -hmm. a lot of what they do has been refined because of the increased number of families who realized they liked the idea of educating at home. And with more families educating at home, then they realized they liked other resources. So they reached out to these charter schools for other resources. And this, you know, it's a, it just keeps refining the process. What are we going to do to meet the needs? How are we going to be better at providing the education to these families working with students in the home? And so you, you, you uh, through the refinement, you come up with the roles, special education liaison, um, doing speech language therapy on Zoom, uh, training parents, in occupational therapy, things like that, that it all makes sense. Yeah. But pre-pandemic, how many people would have even thought of it? Because we weren't forcing students to learn at home. That component that you were talking about too, um, of the, I just keep hearing it echoing, training parents and you know, as a special education teacher, I provided several direct services. And so I get trained by the occupational therapist and the behavior consultant and, you know, and, and it's fantastic. And I then get to apply that skill to other students who may benefit from it. And I'm thinking for families, wow, now you've got this set of skills that might apply in all other realms with your child or with other children, um, because now you've been empowered with this skill. Yes. And if you think about a common theme that teachers learn with difficulties working with students stems back to the home. You know, whether it's socioeconomic status, think about the huge impact that has on, the cl on a classroom, a student in the classroom yeah. that plays a big role. If they're, well, a theme for today was trauma in special education, yeah. how much trauma there might be in the home. And a lot of that involves the education level within the home. So the more we can teach within the home, everyone within the home, the more we can improve the education of the children within that home. Have universal lift. That's right. Um, the, that focus on empowering, I just, 
I, I love that because it's really easy sometimes to get bogged down to into what isn't working. And we forget a lot of times because we're so focused on what's in front of us right here, the, the larger picture and how much is working and how much we can adapt. Like you were discussing, we had to, was, the pandemic was a you know necessity as a mother of invention. And there were some of those things out there already. They just hadn't been refined and developed to this need. And yet here we are. It's with this incredible system and set of systems, again, that you're describing for all families and all students to have the support that they need. Yeah. And that's just what I see in my realm that I've been exposed to. And then my mind starts to get boggled about what else is out there outside of my realm that has been developing in the last few years. Because mm. we all live in our own little bubble. I have exposed you to some of my bubble, and it's opening up your mind to more possibilities. Talk to someone else in their own bubble, and it's going to be different. Uh, all of these innovations that are coming about, and my example was because of COVID. There's a lot more than just COVID that is changing education. That's just on everyone's mind because it's very recent, and it had a very definite impact that everyone could see but there's a lot more shaping things out there. So we've talked a lot, you've, you've shared a lot already around um, your collaboration with um, the specialists. I'm wondering about general education teachers. Do you have much interaction with general education teachers? Is it more special education teachers? What does that look like for you? You word that in an interesting way. Uh, there, we don't technically have special education teachers in, oh. with the families. What we tell the families or the parents is that they are becoming the special education teachers. They are the ones providing the education. We are working to give them the tools they need to provide the education. So even though they usually aren't certified teachers, uh, my team is developing the goals, providing the resources so that the parents can continue to work with the students. The general education teachers, sometimes they'll have a class. The student can uh, join a class online sometimes. There are learning centers in some places. and They can go for a creative writing class. Uh, I know one teacher offers a robotics class that I've heard a lot oh. of students really like. Yeah. Um, there was a trap shooting class. Um, so they offer various classes, uh, some of them very high interest classes. And students get that interaction, but it's still mostly in the home. My interaction with the general education teachers tends to focus on the reporting side. You know, the student took a district assessment can I see the scores from that? And the teacher can make sure I get the scores so that I can look at that. Um, if the teacher is noticing needs that a student has as they are talking with the family, they might contact me. Maybe the student isn't in special education yet, so they'll ask about a referral. And then I'll start to be in more contact with that. And that, But a lot of it is focusing on, are there any assessments that need to be completed? How is the progress on the IEP? 
um, it goes back to we don't pass each other in the hall. And, yeah. <laughs> and so unless something very specific comes up, I don't really interact with them a lot. That is, in my view, one of the downsides to a virtual mm. school. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely the part I missed um, in COVID was that, that you know, those, those chance encounters that you get those hallway meetings and the camaraderie with your colleagues and sharing those experiences together. It's a lot harder when you're in different Zoom rooms to, to share that, that experience. Um, I to get to see that kid do that really cool thing that they did. That's so exciting. Will you share with us a success story or several, uh, depending on what you have um, queued up there, from your work as a special education case manager, any of your work as a special educator? You know, most of my successes I think of, it's like, well, I go back to the classroom. And when you're a case manager and you don't have that classroom, it's harder to see the success because you usually think of your time working with a student and when something finally goes right with a student. <laughs> so I can think yeah. of lots of stories from when I was working in a school. Uh, as a case manager, it's like, well... I got that IEP done on time. Yes, that that's was a, a big success. one. That's, <laughs> it is a big one. That's that's a lot of it. And when you have like, oh, just a couple weeks ago, right before spring break, and I had, I, I think it was thirteen meetings in one week. Oh my gracious! Uh, it was that was so rough trying to get through that? And by the end of the week, it's I made it. And <sighs> Some of the paperwork was even sent out for signatures in time. And that's a lot of the successes that wind up being celebrated in my line of work is actually coordinating everything so people can be online and in a Zoom meeting at the same time, get through everything, get documents sent out for signatures, get them back in the file. That's a lot of what the successes tend to look like. Some of the other successes, maybe a little bit more involving the families and the students, are in the evaluation process. Mm. When you have a referral come in, the family has a concern. And we get a lot of referrals that come in. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it feels like we've had between 80 and 100 referrals this year. Wow. And for a couple of small charter schools, that is quite a lot uh, yes. to work with. And so with all of these referrals that keep pouring in, uh, we, we get the timeline going. The evaluation is started. Uh, the, if it's speech, it's usually fairly simple because that's on Zoom. The, the speech-language pathologist meets with the student does a, you know, something like a half-hour uh, assessment, completes their report, it's done, we meet, it's good. But if it's for autism, we have to coordinate who's going to be driving to whatever city they're in to complete that part of the evaluation. What sort of academic or cognitive piece is needed? And the time that's involved, the, the travel that has to be considered. And then the team comes back and we meet. Um, just today, I met for a student and we looked 
they'd been eligible under developmental delay. They turned nine. Uh, uh, we said, you know, we, it's time to move on to a new eligibility category. Yeah. And so we, we looked at a couple of different categories and we met today. Look at this. His cognitive scores are so good. A uh, couple of weaknesses with memory. Okay. That, that's, that's amazing. Look at his achievement. His scores almost completely within the average range. In fact, yeah. all of his academic scores were in, within the average range. There was because of his age, there was one area of academic weakness. Even though it was within the average range, it, it showed a weakness. But it's okay. it's look at this. He is doing so well. I love it when I can share with a family all of these positive scores. You know, a standard yeah. score of ninety. Or look at this written expression. I want to say was one thirteen, and. And then tell the family, you know, what this is what it means. This is where we're seeing his strengths. And then when we're talking about short-term working memory, that's at 85, something like that. Hmm. This is how this is impacting his education. Then we're able to explain to the parent, this is what this means. This is why math problem solving is difficult for him because... As he's going through it, he he's not able to retain in his working memory the processes he's just learned. Um, yeah. That I view as a success. I've had just, I want to say three months ago, another meeting. We wound up finding the student not eligible. And that can mm. be really hard for a parent because the parents, they're wanting help. Yeah. And so in a way, that's not a success. On the other side of the coin, though, we're able to go to the parent and say, this is the evaluation report. You might not have expected it, but his cognitive scores are amazing. They're all over 100. Um, the, I want to say, visual processing was over 130. Nice. You're not expect the parent wasn't expecting that. Look at how well they're doing. Then we looked at the district-wide assessment and said, this year they have been improving so much, they're over the 80th percentile across the board in academics. Oh. And it's, you know, what the reports don't show is what it took to get there. What the parents yeah. saw as the child was working towards that. The success is all of your parent, all of the parent efforts have been working. And you've worked so well that your child doesn't need special education. So yeah. as rough as it is to say they don't qualify when you are counting on that eligibility, so successful that they don't need the support of special education. It, again, it just all echoes so much of empowering families, knowing that my child's working memory is what's in preventing them from completing math problems or whatever it is that they're struggling with or understanding that, you know, it's a processing speed issue or maybe it's a visual processing issue, but now I know. Now I have this information, knowledge is power, and now I really understand in a whole new way what's going on with my child and their cognitive processing. 
and and what we can do to support greater access and greater success. Um, whether they are eligible or not eligible, the family is empowered with with more information and better ways to support their children. It's really exciting. Yeah, and not only what the weaknesses are, and you know how short term working memory might impact them, but on also what are their strengths. Yeah. Look at this score where they it shows they have a bigger strength. Maybe that's auditory processing. If you know that auditory processing is a strength, how is that going to change the way you work with your child? Yes. Visual processing, not so much. Auditory processing, yes. Well, they need more auditory instruction. They don't they don't need a lot of text for sure. They need to listen more than read. Uh, They need to, I find they might need more hands-on to feel things rather than reading through how to do something as well. It can kind of... One-on-one possibly. Yeah, really demystifying some of the components that we go, what is going on? Why can't I get this to them in the way that works? Oh, because I need to switch it up. I need to do something more auditory or more tactile or more visual if that's their strength. But now we have the knowledge to really help guide that. I get excited about these kinds of things, you know. (laughs) So do I. Uh, that's what must make us wonderful special educators. I'll just say it for us right now. Um, Nathan, this has been such a lovely conversation. Go spend. Um, (laughs) Is there anything else that you wanted to share that I didn't ask about? If there had been, I worked it in already. (laughs) I I was uh, creative about that. I remember years ago hearing uh, someone that their method of speaking when like if they were being, asked questions by reporters or something like that. So they always knew what they wanted to say. So no matter what the question was, they said what they wanted to say anyway. They just made it sound like they were answering the person's question. And I don't do it exactly like that, but if I had something I wanted to work in, I made sure I fit it in to one of the earlier questions. I can see that being a real strength in your role too. Yeah. Um, you got a lot of information you get to share and making sure everyone gets it. Yeah. Oh, Nathan, I really appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much for this interview. Um, and a tip for our listeners uh, to visit the Oregon Council for Exceptional Children's website, oregon.exceptionalchildren.org, or go to their Facebook page for the opportunity to get a mini grant. You do not have to be a member to apply. And they've got lots of other great resources, too. Thank you all for listening. We'll catch you next time. For more OEA professional learning opportunities, visit grow.oregonad.org.